children kindergarten through second grade are dismissed um, for Praise City. And then if uh, the rest of you all would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. We're going to pick up in verse 13, and it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. And so as you're flipping there, um, as we get ready for this sermon, I'd like to just remind us where we're at in this still uh, pretty fresh sermon series. This is our third week in Isaiah, and we're exploring um, just a few chapters in Isaiah as he's talking about the person and work of Christ, who Jesus is and what he did for God's people. And so we're going to finish up chapter 52 this morning and start um, exploring chapter 53 as well. And so far what we've seen is that God is speaking to a people in exile, people who through their rebellion have found themselves far from home. And he spoke to them in the first part of chapter 52 saying, Awake, arise, shake yourselves from the dust of death. I, the Lord, am here. I'm with you. And I'm bringing you home. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you back to myself. I will be faithful, though you have been faithless. And we saw then last week how that announcement of God's presence with his people and his commitment to their salvation led a group of redeemed priests to rejoice and to break out in song, celebrating so great a peace and a happiness and a salvation that the Lord would accomplish for them. And we talked then about how God was going to bear his holy arm as the divine warrior, not who would just go around carelessly exacting vengeance, but who would fight to bring his family home, to save them from themselves, to save them from sin, death, Satan, the enemies of God's people. And so we've seen so far in this series then God's commitment to his people, his commitment to save them. And now this morning in what is called the fourth servant song of Isaiah, we're going to see as the, the text shifts and starts saying how God is going to save his people. And so in the book of Isaiah, there are four poems that have been called the, the servant songs. They talk about the servant of the Lord whom God would send to accomplish salvation for his people. And this one, the fourth, is probably the most famous. It's imagery um, from the poetry here. It fills a lot of our hymns all throughout the histories of the church. And so as we explore it, it it's important to remember it is a poem. The language here is beautiful, and it's, it's got metaphors, and it's meant to evoke in us um, just a deep feeling of the truth of God's word this morning. And what we're going to see is that it's going to talk about the servant who is the arm of the Lord who has come to save God's people. As we get ready to unpack this poem and behold what God has to teach us here, it's important that we kind of prepare ourselves and set the stage by asking a question of ourselves, and that is, what kind of people do you tend to admire? And on the flip side of that, what kind of people are you most likely to dismiss without a second thought? These questions are connected and together they tend to reveal what we value in life, what we think the good life should look like, the kind of lives and the kinds of people that matter are worth our time. We're, we're all finite, limited human beings. We can't give everyone equal amounts of our time. And so there's some people we really look up to. They're people we wanna be like. They're people who we think will help us get on in life. And then there are other people or it's not necessarily that we're coming at them like a hater, but we just look past them. We don't really see them at all. We, we don't give them much of our time. And if we stop and reflect on that, that happens sometimes habitually, we realize that it's because there's some sort of idea in our hearts that leads us to think that's, that's not really someone worth my time because I can't get anything from them or because they're that guy whose joke always lands five minutes too late in the conversation and make things awkward. And I don't feel like I can, you know, work through that. You know, whatever the reason is, there are people in both categories for us. And that reveals something about what we value in life. And what we're going to see in this text 
is that Jesus, who is the suffering servant, who comes to save God's people, he tends to flip our values upside down or shows us, in fact, that our values are the things that are upside down. He comes and he subverts God's people's expectations of what God would do to save them. Listen to what John Oswald has to say as as he sets the stage for this text. He says, the announcement of the means of salvation that comes after Isaiah 52 verse 12 is surprising in the sense that all the language about God's power to redeem and to defeat the enemies of his people, it tends to condition the reader, it conditions us to expect something in the way of overwhelming power and might. But when instead we hear about suffering, humiliation, and loss, it comes as a surprise. I think the problem that a lot of us face, if you're a church kid like me, or you've, you've just been in the church for a very long time now, is that Jesus' exaltation in the midst and through his humiliation that we're gonna see in this text, it no longer surprises us. We come one Easter season to the next, and, and we just feel like it's all familiar. There's this film of familiarity that's settled in And we're just like, I've got this, man. You know, I've been around the church block. I've got the gospel unlocked. And we reduce it, that which is never meant to be simple math, we reduce it to a little formula. We're like, you know, look, just like two plus two equals four, so I know Jesus came to die for my sins so I can be with God forevermore. We can make a little ditty out of it like that, and it rhymes. And we just trot that out. But the gospel is not just a single sentence. You can say it in a sentence because it is clear, but it, it ought not be something we just say passively and out of hand. And so for a lot of us, if we're like, yeah, yeah, I've got this, man. You know, it's spring break, I'm tired, we made it, we're leaving town tomorrow. Um, We need the spirit to point us to Christ so that this would be fresh, it would be real to us this morning so that we can see the key truth of this text, that Jesus is the suffering servant who was humiliated through his suffering and rejection by fallen humanity, but was exalted by God for our salvation. That is a paradox and it is the truth So with that in mind, an independence upon the Spirit, seeking him to illumine our minds and stir up our hearts, let's turn to God's word and read Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 and see the paradox of the suffering servant, exaltation in humiliation. If you would, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And so in this first stanza of the poem, this, these first three verses, God is the one who is speaking. And we'll see in the next stanza, Isaiah will then begin to speak on behalf of God's people. But here, the Lord is speaking. He's speaking of his servant, the one whom he is sending to save his people. And notice what he says about his servant first, aside from the fact that it is his servant. He says, my servant will act wisely. What does that mean? Well, I think by way of contrast, it's helpful to think about how do we tend to act? You know, we've already pointed out by thinking about that question in the beginning, a lot of us, we tend to act very shrewdly. We calculate things. We're always playing the angles, trying to figure out, you know, what's it gonna cost me to do this or that? You know, I only have so much time, but how can I at least make it look like I can do everything kind of well? Um, And social media and and the digital age makes it even easier for us to do that, um, or at least pretend we can do that. And a lot of us, as we think about that, we tend to think of wisdom as sort of the, the way by which you can be suave. 
and smooth in life and pursue an, a frictionless existence and effortless achievement. Like we're just trying to play the angles, get by with as little inconvenience as possible. And we'll, we'll do that in our relationships, we'll do that in our work, we'll do that in our studies, um, we'll do that everywhere. What we're gonna see though is Jesus is not pursuing that at all. The life he's gonna live in true wisdom is gonna cost him everything. And wisdom is not something that is cheap and it is not something that, that comes without friction or effort. But he's gonna do whatever it takes to save God's people. And so wisdom is living for the glory of the Lord. It is living fully into God's purposes. And that is the kind of life the servant would come to live. And he's going to do whatever it takes to bring God's people out of exile. And we know right away from verse 13, he's gonna be victorious. It talks about three times about him being high and lifted up and exalted. And so at this point, everything in the text, it feels awesome. Who wouldn't want this God-sent king who's going to come and he's gonna win? Like as Americans, we love this. We're like, that sounds like victory. That sounds like triumph. It sounds like winning. Like, let's go. This is good. And it is good. But in true wisdom, Christ is the suffering servant who is going to condescend so far low. And he knows that his exaltation will only come on the heels and through his utter humiliation. And so the penny drops as you keep reading into verse 14. It feels almost like one of those free fall tower of terror rides at the theme parks. Because you're up here and you're thinking, he's gonna be high, he's gonna be lifted up, he's gonna be exalted, and then boom, the floor drops out from under you. And you hear that he's hardly gonna be recognizable as a human being. And we're meant to be thinking, wait, how did we, how did we go from that to here so quickly? And then as we're caught in the grips of some serious whiplash, the text shoots back up. And it says, well, hold on, he is gonna be victorious because he will sprinkle many nations. The kings will shut their mouths and understand what he has done. There's a paradox. There's promised exaltation and then surprisingly just comprehensive total humiliation. And it is through that 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 exaltation happens. And the interesting part is that Isaiah doesn't necessarily explain how all of this is gonna work yet. He leaves us in some tension. As the poem unfolds, and especially as we'll see next week, he'll get into some more of the mechanics of why this is necessary, what the servant is doing by his humiliation, by his suffering for God's people. But for now, he leaves us surprised, recognizing this is not gonna go the way we think. We don't just need a great king to bring in the kingdom. We need a great king who will bring us into the kingdom. And he leaves us with the impression that there's a deeper problem here and that the problem is with us. But he doesn't leave us there entirely because as, as I said, as you look on in verse 15, there is the promise of victory. He's going to sprinkle many nations and bring them in. And you may, especially if you have the ESV, I know that for certain, that's what I have in front of me. There's a footnote on that word sprinkle and it could mean sprinkle or it could mean startle. And either way though, what this text is saying is that this servant is going to come and not just bring Israel back, but he's going to go from every tongue, tribe, and nation and gather God's people from all the corners of the world into the kingdom. That word sprinkle is used all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and Leviticus, when you're reading of the ceremonies of, of God's people and their worship in the Old Testament, and they would use um, the blood of sacrifices and sprinkle things to set them apart. Most famously, you could look at Exodus 24 when they're confirming the covenant God has made with them. And Moses is sprinkling everything, including the people, with blood from the sacrifices. And if you go into the book of Hebrews, chapters 10 through 12, you hear of Christ's blood 
and how that is sprinkled upon us to bring us in, to cleanse our consciences of sin. And so we see then that this is a promise that the servant is going to bring God's people home and not just Israel, but people from all over the world. Now, if you do read that text instead of sprinkle as startle though, that emissional element is still there because again, notice the kings will shut their mouths. And it's amazing because these are kings, not just in Israel, but who had never heard of this, but they will see the truth and understand it. And I can't help but think, especially at Easter time, you think of Good Friday and the centurion who was just a pawn of the empire. Like this dude was, was just a hired gun um, and used by the religious elite and the Jews. And yet he sees it. The, the religious elite who had had these texts, who knew this book in the Bible, missed it. And this guy who was used by them to execute Jesus is standing there and he says, truly, this was the son of God. He had not heard, he had not been told, but he saw and he understood. And so we see then the paradoxical nature of this. And it is, as Barry Webb explains, he says, the cleansing the servant brings is for many nations. The one that people regarded as unclean because they were appalled at him, verse 14, will turn out to be the one who cleanses others. It is a paradox so astounding that it will dry up every accusation and cause every mouth to be stopped. The wisdom of God displayed in the servant will utterly confound human wisdom. And so as a church, it's worth us asking ourselves, what kind of message is the world hearing from us? And do we startle or astonish them with what we say? And if so, why? Because we can startle and astonish the world for a lot of really bad reasons. We can startle them with our silence in the face of, of evil or hypocrisy. We can startle them um, by, by a posture of arrogance where essentially, no matter what we say, all they feel from us is basically, we're right, you're wrong, and if you wanna be right, you should be like us. But do we startle and astonish them with the good news, the paradoxical, amazing, astounding, awe-inspiring news of Christ crucified and raised for the salvation of God's people? Do they ever hear from us, not just on Sunday, and, and they must hear that in our worship, but as we live our lives as a church scattered and sent out in our community, are people hearing from us about this God who condescends himself so far, who humbles himself completely, holding absolutely nothing of himself back, becoming a man, becoming the lowest of men, drinking the great cup of suffering to its dregs, the cup the Father set before the Son, and therefore experiencing every aspect of suffering imaginable, mental, physical, emotional, taking on what we deserve and giving us that which we don't deserve, being beaten to a pulp, spat upon his own beard being ripped out, he was stripped naked for all to see, He's hung high on this wooden splintery cross with metal spikes driven through his limbs to hang him there. He's hanging naked before his own mother, watching on in horror as all of this has happened. His friends have betrayed him. They've abandoned him and he dies. He truly dies. And he did all of that for us. And he didn't stay there, but he rose from the dead and he calls God's people to him to lift our hearts to him. We who so often feel forgotten or alone and neglected, the, the son of God did this for us and it ought to astound us and that message is needed. But are we living it? Are we sharing it? And if the world is startled or astonished because of hearing that from us, to hearing the amazing news of Christ crucified, then amen. 
And, and we're not meant to do this just by ourselves either. Like when we hear that kind of thing, we think like, man, I have to do this all by myself and I'm really introverted or I, I've not studied very much. How do I do this? But remember, we're a community. We're a family here. We can do this together. We can lean on one another's strengths. We can build each other up and encourage each other. But as a church, we're called to be creative in this. We're called to share the good news. Like if you go see a good movie, you're telling people about it for at least like two days. You share that story because it was meaningful to you. You want others to know about it. So this story ought to be fast on our lips. It ought to be fresh in our hearts week after week, just bubbling up and out and into all that we're doing throughout the week so that we can celebrate week after week as we see over time people coming in and maybe experiencing for the very first time the awe that comes with knowing that God loves you that much, that you do all of that despite all you've done to bring you home to him. And so if you would, um, please turn back to the text. We're gonna read the next stanza, Isaiah 53, one through three, and see here the humiliation of the suffering servant, part one, suffering witnessed and ignored. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, some of these verses here may be familiar, especially if you spend a lot of time in the New Testament. Romans 10 and then John 12 picks up Isaiah 53, one, because it's, it's a powerful question. But before we get to any of that, notice how the warrior imagery in this part of the stanza, it gives way to agricultural imagery. We have then, again, the reference to the arm of the Lord that was introduced in chapter 52 last week, verse 10. And so we're thinking, okay, divine warrior, the image of the king, the warrior king who's come, he's gonna beat the bad guys, he's gonna deliver us as people. And we hear of this wee little plant, this plant that if you, if you look at the details here, like it shouldn't have survived. It is a root out of dry ground. You can't grow plants in dry ground. Like all circumstances considered, this plant was, was not meant to make it. It made it only because it grew up before the Lord. And that's astonishing. Again, it's a subversion of our expectations. And it could also be a reference to Isaiah 11 verse one, where Isaiah talks about the shoot from the stump of Jesse, who is David's father. And so it could be a reference and a reminder again that this is the Davidic king. This is the promised one. But Isaiah continues and he says that the suffering servant, this, this the arm of the Lord, who's also this wee little plant, he has no form and no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing about him that's a facade or that's some sort of marketing ploy to make us like, yeah, I think that guy would be a good king. It's not like Saul in the Old Testament where they're like, yeah, this dude's tall. So, you know, you know as short people are like, man, why is it always the tall guys? But like, he's tall, he should lead us. And that didn't go very well for them. One commentator points out that Joseph and David, two of, not, not all of the leaders in, in um, the Old Testament are described this way, but these two, who are major ones, were both described as, as attractive. The word beautiful was used of them. And yet here, the most important figure in the entire Bible, Jesus, has no form, no beauty, no majesty that we should esteem him. It's interesting. 
And then in verse three, we get even more powerful descriptions and surprising descriptions of the suffering servant. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The word acquainted with there, it's, it's the idea he knows it in his bones. He and grief are close companions. His whole life is spent in the depths and dregs of, of brokenness in this fallen world. He is not someone who just kind of floats along on the laurels of his success and doesn't know what it's like to be in the everyday. The mundane just week after week of life um, where you're sweating, and you're working hard, and you don't necessarily see any progress in your goals. Like sometimes in, in the church, we can feel like, man, you know, there's like what I go through throughout the week and that's tough and it's the same thing and it's not easy. And then you come to church and you just feel like it's caught that you're just supposed to smile all the time. But here, here we see that, that the, the son of God knew real life. He was not foreign to it. He was not someone who was just handing out smiley face stickers and saying, come on, cheer up. I know life's hard, but you know, get, get with the program. He understands what we go through and he went through it himself. But even though he did understand what we went through, as a result of all of that, because he wasn't some shiny, glamorous king, he was despised and rejected by his own people. And the word despised there is really interesting because it doesn't necessarily mean that they just came and attacked him and, and just resisted him openly. It can also just mean a very casual, passive shrug of the shoulders and walk away. Again, the idea that he's not worth their time. They just overlook him and they don't care. And so it's interesting. Listen to what Alec Moitier has to say on this passage. He says, esteemed is an accounting word. It's a reckoning up of value. So when all the human eye saw and the human mind apprehended was added up when they were looking at Jesus, the result was zero. And with this word, Isaiah completes a diagnosis of our human condition to see the servant and find no beauty in him reveals a bankruptcy of the human emotions. To be one with those who despise and then reject him exposes the misguidedness of the human will. To appraise and conclude that he is nothing condemns our minds as corrupted by and participants in our sinfulness. Thus, every aspect of human nature is inadequate every avenue along which by nature we might arrive at the truth and respond to God is closed. Nothing but divine revelation can make the servant known to us and draw us to him. In other words, we're not gonna recognize the truth of this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to point us to Christ, to see that which is there, but because of our brokenness, because of the topsy-turviness of our hearts and our misplaced values, we will never see the value in Christ unless the Spirit stirs us up. And so when we don't feel like we just appreciate the gospel, the, the solution is not just to, to wait for us to get the feelings back. The solution is, Spirit, come help me. I don't see it, but I know it's there. And I know you can point it out to me. And that also, again, alleviates some of the burden we might feel as you think about teaching the word, or as you think about sharing the gospel with your friends, you're not gonna be the one who can package it in such a way that it's attractive and they'll finally believe it. This text just clears the way of that. We're not supposed to do that. We work in dependence upon the spirit, which is why we pray a lot for people who need this. And we abide in their lives with presence. And then over time, the spirit, as he gives opportunity, we can share and we can pray and, and look excitedly expectation, with expectation for opportunities that they're getting it. Signs of the Spirit is on the move in their lives. 
But for us, it's also worth us pausing and asking a very simple question. And that question is, do you esteem or do you despise Christ? It's that simple to boil it down. And then once you've answered that, then you can ask, how is your view of Christ shaping your view of others? Because again, in our just brokenness and our fallenness, there is nothing here that draws us in. We esteem him not. And yet we have to remember, if God sent Christ, his only beloved son, to die for us, think how much he esteems us. And we should pause and really consider this Easter season, rather than going through the motions, is this real to us? Where has my heart been? Where where has my time been going? Am I spending time with the Lord? Am I spending time with my family, raising them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Am I just trying to get people to say the right words? Or am I truly looking for the spirit to work in their lives to help them understand this in truth? And if you would, turn to John 12. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, how the New Testament picks up Isaiah 53.1 in a couple of places. And this is the, the most powerful application. I would encourage you this Lord's Day Sabbath to read through John 12 in its entirety. On the heels of the triumphal entry as Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're putting down the palm branches. They're laying down their cloaks. They're saying, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king. So their expectations are getting high. And then Jesus starts talking to them. And he starts talking about what it is he's gonna do. And they start getting confused and they start protesting like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you're gonna be lifted up? This doesn't sound like what we were hoping for. And he starts talking with them some more. And then after that, John explains, he says, look, after this, Jesus had said these things and he departed and he hid themselves from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And if you jump down to verse 41, you see the punchline. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Christ's glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That ought to give a lot of us pause, myself first in line. Because you just think about the dynamics of life, like, how we tend to form groups and everyone wants to be on the inside. And if you're the guy left on the outside, like that's terrifying. You feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel chewed up, you feel used. And so that's what they're feeling here. They're recognizing like, look, if we follow Christ and the trajectory he's going on, we might lose everything we know, everything we've gotten from people in life. And it's gonna be gone. There's risk. And so they're scared. And for a lot of us, we find ourselves there. We wanna know like, you know, Lord, we see everything we have. What, what might it cost? to follow you. And for a lot of us, sometimes we're wrestling with deep frustrations in life. Um, I was listening to uh, a rap song the other day by Andy Minio. Um, and it was really interesting because he has a quote in there. And I don't know if it's him just talking to a distortion pedal or if he's quoting somebody else, but it says, anxiety is what happens when you mix fear with control. And when you lose control, all that's left is rage. I was like, man, that, that gets me a lot. A lot of times in my life, I find that I despise Christ. I just look past him and I look to all these other things because I'm trying to maintain control over that, which I had no control over to begin with. 
And we recognize and we feel just the, the tension and the burn of everyday life, things going wrong, things not going the way we wanted them to, relationships not happening, people getting sick and not getting better, people dying, betrayal, heartbreak, all of these things. And we're going to church week after week after week and sometimes you just feel like it's a parody. And you're afraid to admit it, but you're mad. You're mad at the Lord. But I think it's really helpful to remember here that Jesus, again, is someone who is familiar with the suffering we go through. The Lord is not promising us a suffering-free life. He's not promising us a frictionless existence. What he's promising us is his presence amidst the brokenness. He's promising us that he will be with us. And that's comforting because I think what so much of us want is not necessarily just that, that perfect, you know, friction, frictionless existence and a life free of suffering. We want to be known and we want to be loved and we want to know that despite all of the bad things, it's going to be okay. And that's the promise we have. If Christ is the suffering servant who can suffer and go to the bottom of human existence, be just broken beyond human recognition, and then rise victorious, then he can do the same for us no matter where we find ourselves this morning. He can hold us fast. He will be with us. He will love us. And if you've been coming to church for a while or you've just grown up in the South and so you've been hearing of Jesus for a long time, but you're just kind of like, man, I'm just gonna kind of punt this downfield. I'm gonna wait and figure things out later on in life. Like I urge you, recognize what is before you. Don't wait because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised next week but the Lord is here today. Christ is here today calling to you. And so I can think of no better words than to conclude with. And if you look back at John 12, verse 35, Jesus says this, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. But while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so the application of this text is, is very straightforward. Jesus is the suffering servant who was humiliated through his suffering and rejection by fallen humanity, by us who walk in darkness. But at the same time, he's a suffering servant who was exalted by God for our salvation, that we may be brought in and become sons and daughters of light. And so with that in our hearts and minds, let us pray. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks, oh Jesus, that you are good and that despite all that we have done, you endured so much worse than, than, than we experience and you've done it all for us and you know what it is like to live in just the daily grind of a broken and a fallen world. You're not someone who's unfamiliar with what we go through and yet, Lord, even for those of us who are familiar with, with who you are and what you've done, so often, Lord, we confess we're not moved by it. So, Spirit, we pray and ask this next week, this very hour, this day, help us to see and to believe. Lord, I pray for those who are on the fence, um, maybe who have never uh, professed faith, Lord, and, and who are wondering what all of this is about. Lord, please work in their hearts. They feel safe here to talk with us. Help us who do believe to be open and patient and present with people in our lives that we'd be a safe person for them to explore these things with, whether it is the next generation or our coworkers, our parents, um, family that's older than us, whoever it may be, Lord, use us mightily, O oh God, for your kingdom and use us in these humble and everyday ways. 
that many more would come to see just the beautiful paradox that Christ through his humiliation was lifted up and lifted up to save us. And so Lord, with all of this, we just give you thanks for your love. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.